Well, hi there, and welcome to Listen with Cheryl McKay. I know I've mentioned this before probably many times, but I am always so interested in how people have ended up doing the creative things that they do. You know, in fact, I think I'm going to devote a whole future podcast to talking about that with a number of people, just digging into some of the things that may have influenced them to be on the path they're on. My guest on this episode has taken a very circuitous route to her current work as a children's author. Rachel Poliquin began her studies in the realm of visual art. She got a degree at UBC and studied at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Arts, and then did a master's degree at Stanford that looked, among other things, at cabinets, cabinets of curiosity. Rachel also completed a doctorate at the University of British Columbia, studying medicine in the 17th century, among other topics. The first time I met Rachel, about mm, 10 years ago or so, she'd written a book on taxidermy and had curated a show about the art for the Museum of Vancouver. In the last few years, Rachel has continued writing, but she's no longer doing academic kind of writing, still involved, though, in lots of research. Her latest book is titled The Museum of Odd Body Leftovers, A Tour of Your Useless Parts, flaws, and other weird bits. It is a delightful book, beautifully illustrated. I sat down with Rachel at her kitchen table to talk about this book and a number of her other books for young readers as well, and started by asking her what she's working on these days. Well, I always seem to have multiple books on the go at a time, and that's kind of the way I work. I I believe in positive procrastination. (laughs) So when you have one project that's not going well, you have so much energy to put into another project. And so I kind of try to work that as much as possible. So I think I'll steal that, by the way, positive procrastination. (laughs) That is lovely. Well, your bum is still in the chair. You are still working. And I find when you're doing what you're not supposed to be doing, it gives you an added verve and energy to something a bit naughty. Oh, yes. So then I I often write an entire book while I'm procrastinating on what I'm I'm supposed to be doing. (laughs) But um, right now I'm writing a follow-up for the Museum of Odd Body Leftovers. They asked me to... um, Find some more bits. Well, and I, um, I'm somewhat regretting it now, but I suggested glands. Oh. Which I knew nothing about. And I've now discovered that glands completely run our body and they're involved in every single one of our systems. So I feel like now I'm writing a a short course on anatomy for kids, but I am, so I'm working on that. And then, um, I am giving a couple talks on the strangest thing in the sea coming up, which is another one of my books about weird deep sea creatures. So I've kind of entered back into that world again. And then I've always got a few other fun projects on the go that I'm not supposed to be doing. (laughs) (laughs) When I came in here, Rachel, I said to you, and I'll say it here now again, did I dream this? Or did you and I not talk about a book about taxidermy one time in the the distant past? In the distant past, yeah, for about a decade, I was involved in all things taxidermy and with museums. So that was kind of how the interest in taxidermy came about, was old natural history museums that were trying to figure out what to do with their old taxidermy collections. And so I wrote a book about it and I, I worked on some museum shows and I helped the Beatty Museum start up their vertebrate collections when oh. they started. I wrote all of that. And then, I don't know, some, a switch happened and I, I guess part of it was I had uh, three children 
And so after that, I switched from moving, switched from writing for adults to writing for kids, which is what I now do. You studied taxidermy too, I think, didn't you? Uh, no, I never, that was, that's, uh, I never, I never did taxidermy myself. And I love how, um, multiple people still think that I was a taxidermist, uh-huh. people who actually know me and no, <laughs> no, I never, I never engaged in any of that. I was just more interested in the, the cultural history and the social history of how that all came about. But I never, I never did anything myself. No. You see, you were very convincing, right? <laughs> Speaking about it. Yeah. Yeah, I almost wondered if I would come in here and see some, you know, be- little beady eyes looking down from top shelves. Well, people used to give me taxidermy. I, 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 was, I was home to a lot of pieces that I was given, and I'd always recycle them out and find a home in the larger world for them. I still do have a jackalope in the basement. However. Do you? Yes, I do. I so forget what a jackalope one. is. That is a, a jackrabbit with antlers. Right. Yes. Right. A yeah. completely uh, fictional creature. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> so he's down near the coat rack in the basement. But other than that, I have no taxidermy. You know, I've talked to people who work with wood, who get wood dropped off at their doors, yeah. or people who work with, you know, other elements that get those. But I don't know if I'd want to have taxidermy dropped off at the door. Well, they were always, I would go and talk to someone or interview someone or there would, and they would sort of, oh, there's this thing, you really must take it. And then you can't say no. No. And then you find a better home for it. (laughs) I would love to start by talking about this book, The Museum of Odd Body Leftovers, a tour of your useless parts, flaws, and other weird bits. This is a, a wonderful book. It's so interesting. I realize it's written for children. I enjoyed it so much, Rachel. Tell us about where this started for you. Well, this actually, uh, this is published with Greystone, and Greystone actually came to me and asked if I would like to write a book about vestigial organs or the bits left over from your evolutionary history, and that sounded just quirky enough for me. <laughs> and what I love to do with all of my books is the main thing I am is a researcher. I cannot stop delving into things. And I love going as deeply as possible into any subject. And then the skill, because I, I guess because my, my history, my academic background and writing for adults, so I love all that research. But then the skill for writing for kids is taking all that research and then figuring out how you can engage kids with. Because I'm not writing a textbook. Mm. I'm trying to to take them on a little bit of a journey into these weird worlds. So I find that that takes, that takes the biggest kind of conceptual leap, if you will, of how to figure out how to engage kids and, and come up with a fun metaphor. And the thing I also always like to do with my kids' books is I, I always like to have a narrator because we all learn better when someone's chatting with us as opposed to reading a book. So I always try and make them very, very chatty. So then you have to come up with a concept and then you have to come up with, well, who is telling the story? Who is the narrator character? And it just, it just kind of clicked that your body is a museum of your leftover bits, quite literally. Mm-hmm. And who better to be the narrator than a wisdom tooth who, <laughs> <so> is, <laughs> who is increasingly become, becoming a bit of a leftover, an evolutionary leftover. So. And has the wisdom to <laughs> explore. <laughs> has the wisdom to explore, yeah. I just want to say I think it's delightful that when the folks at Greystone were thinking... Who do 
we know who would write a book about odd body parts? I know. <laughs> I was the natural choice, yeah. <laughs> this is a good niche. Yeah. It is just when you think of odd body parts and things that are, I guess, less useful now, one thing that probably comes to mind for a lot of people and one that you mentioned in the book is the appendix. But as it turns out... Not so completely useless after all. Not so completely useless. And most things, just because we don't know what they do, most things um, have a use. And the other thing that I found really interesting in this book is because there's, there's so much redundancy built into our bodies mm. that this bit can do that, but also this bit and also that bit. And I guess they all, they, like it was evolution trying to figure out which was the most sensible way forward with any of these particular functions. And so... The appendix has a role, but other bits also have the role, so it can be removed, but that doesn't mean it's useless. Right. And it, is, it, it has some regulatory role. Uh, it helps with the immune system. It helps with dealing with gunk and sending out good gunk, and, <laughs> but it, it can. I, I don't have an appendix, so, and I'm still, <laughs> You're still here. I'm still here. <laughs> Were there surprises for you as you did the research for the book? Well, because I really knew nothing about, I mean, I knew the basics of evolution that most of us know, but I didn't really know that much. So I feel like the book was an endless series of surprises as I delved into it. And I will always have a very soft spot in my heart for this book because I was writing it at uh, when COVID first broke out around the world. And so I think I finished writing it in April, April 2020. And so, as I say, whenever I, I, I do all my basic research, and then if ever I don't have, if I have questions that I don't understand something, I always try and find the world leading expert on whatever it is. So I read academic papers and I try and figure out. And so I was connecting with people all around the world, asking these questions about why do fetuses still grow tails or why do we have this weird part in our arm? So I spoke to someone I spoke to someone in Belgium who her husband was still in France and she was living in a, a cottage with her parents, but her husband couldn't come. And I spoke to someone in the middle of New York right when it was all breaking out. I huh. spoke to someone in Japan. I spoke to someone in Italy. And so I was having these conversations about evolution and body parts, and but I was also having all these conversations about what life was like yeah. during COVID yeah. at that time. And it was such an interesting, unexpected global outreach community that was grown with this book. And so, um, I mean, I haven't kept in touch with any of these people, but at the moment it felt very, I don't know, it just felt good. Yeah, especially like you say, locked locked in your house and then connecting with somebody locked in their house on the other side of the world. Talking about this quirky bit. Yeah. And I find uh, for an academic to want, because I ask very odd questions um, that... Like... <laughs> I don't know, I can't think of it. I, I, I come up with the, the metaphor that I'm using and I try and explain what I'm trying to do. And only a certain group of people really want to respond or feel like these are worthy questions to answer. And so they're always a charming group of people who right. will actually spend time with me. So, yeah. You mentioned uh, the odd bit in the arm. Is that the, the, the monkey muscle that you mentioned? The monkey muscle. There's all of these different uh, muscles from when we swung from trees or when our feet were able to hold on to a branch. And 
the the one funny thing was we called them monkey bars, but in fact it is apes, uh, including humans, who they're the only ones that have the ability to swing their shoulders in that way. So they really should be called ape bars. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't have the same ring to it, though. <laughs> you talk about hiccups mm-hmm. in the book. Yes. And I remember when I was pregnant with my daughter, every night at 6 o'clock, before she was born, she had hiccups. And then after she was born, she continued to have hiccups oh, right around the same time. But why on earth do we have hiccups? Hiccups is one of our older evolutionary quirks. And they believe that it's from when we had the ability to both breathe underwater and breathe inland. It was a little spasm in your throat that blocked off your lungs Hmm. when you went from breathing air to breathing water. And that's what they believe. But although that seems like it would be a useless part now, they think mammals have maintained it as a way to practice uh, breastfeeding. Oh. in nursing, right. that there's some, there's some kind of skill involved in that. that has made it. That is the one thing when you get into the depths of evolution. There's so much that is unknown. There's so much that is just imaginative reconstruction and you come up with theories and you try and figure out what might work. And it is a really magically imaginative science as much as it is hard science of facts and numbers. Like the puckery fingers. Like the puckery fingers. So the puckery fingers, because it's only the only skin on our body that does get puckery when it's wet is the tips of our toes and the tips of our fingers. So um, one scientist thinks that it's similar to treads on a tire because we don't have claws. We have nails, so they're not very good at holding on to trees. So that helps remove water and maintain grip. Mm. But it's a theory. It's a theory. I mean, I don't know how you would go about proving that. but it must have been interesting then, too, like you say, to talk to one person who subscribes to a theory and somebody else who might have a whole different idea. Uh, I didn't get, and he's the only one who came up with a theory about puckery fingers that had any kind of logic to me. So, And you had to find this person. I had to find this person. <laughs> so I do very interesting, um, I do very interesting Google searches to find people. Some of the, some of the words you put in, you're, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but Rachel, like you mentioned, your earliest careers, your studies, very mm-hmm. academic. Mm-hmm. You, you've done a PhD mm-hmm. in comparative literature. and. Yes. It seems like such an interesting route to to be writing children's books. Tell me, I guess, first of all, how you ended up being so fascinated with the whole field of comparative literature and 17th century literature, if I recall. Well, comparative literature was a little bit of a platform for me because I didn't compare and I didn't do literature. (laughs) I'd studied 17th century science and nature and how that linked into British nationalism at the time. Mm. It was this medical theory of humoral medicine and how plants and and personalities and national identities all kind of combined together. So what I, the switch from that to taxidermy seems a bit unusual. And then the switch from taxidermy to children's books also seems un- unusual. But I think I, I'm a very engaged passionate person about the things that I'm interested in mm. but then but then I'm I'm interested in the next one right so I don't think I ever would have been a very good academic to study one thing for the rest of my life I'm far more interested in what I don't know 
and I'm far more interested in being endlessly uncomfortable with what I don't know. <laughs> and I find that's a good platform to on to the next project. And you, you sort of did a little delve into fine arts there as well. I, I began Major. as a painter. <laughs> I began as a painter, and, and then I just seemed to... So who knows where I'll be in the next ah. 10 years. <laughs> and did you envision, I mean, given, like you say, you, you become interested in something very passionately for a while, did you envision at first that your life would be as a visual artist? I did. I did, and then... Uh, I don't know, a series of things happened and I realized, I realized that I wanted to study things more deeply, mm. I guess, was, was the big switch. A lot of my paintings began to have more and more words in them. Huh. And then I applied to a program and I got into the program and it seemed like a, a divine path. And so I, I went along that path. And then, I don't know, I seemed to do something for about a decade, and then I, and then I moved swiftly on. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a thread, too, I guess, like you say, it's that curiosity, that constant curiosity, and being a little bit challenged, a little bit uncomfortable with being on the edge, maybe, of something? Yeah, I think so. And the, the kids' books was really a natural... I don't know, I think it was a bit of a natural slide because I wrote a book on the cultural history of beavers mm -hmm. for adults that was part of a really wonderful series on each book is dedicated to the cultural history of a particular animal. And I wrote that book during my son's first year of life, hmm. which was my so-called maternity leave. <laughs> I, I wrote this book and I remember my, my son was very colicky at the beginning and and he wasn't a very calm baby. And I would be juggling this baby and I would be trying to write this book. And I remember I would talk to him about trying to explain the madness of what I was doing. And I, and I remember saying to him, this little, little blob of baby, I would say, well, you know, I'm writing this book because it's like beavers are like superheroes. And I kept trying to explain why I was doing this to this six-month-old baby. And something clicked in my brain that, oh, well... I actually have a whole pitter-patter that I'm doing for this child. And then at this point, so this was 10 years ago, there's been a huge revolution, I feel, in kids' nonfiction books. Where, But before, kids' nonfiction's kind of maybe, well, I mean, there's been some amazing, non, I don't want to categorize, there's been amazing nonfiction books. But a lot of people think of nonfiction as being photographic mm. images with sort of encyclopedic text, and that the fun genre is fiction. And nonfiction is kind of a bit dry. It's a bit of the ugly sister. And I never saw why that needed to be because nonfiction is often much more fascinating <laughs> and much more bizarre and just as engaging. And so I, I went, I remember going to the libraries and I remember trying to find really fabulous nonfiction for kids. And I found a couple. There was one called um, Astrocat's uh, Guide to the galaxy, I think. Huh. And it's about a space cat who goes off and explores. And I think it's written by an astrophysicist. And it was just, I remember thinking, oh, well, nonfiction should be like this. It should be illustrated. It should be fun. It should have characters. It should be. So then, then I ended up having two more children, uh, my twin girls, a few years later. And at that point, it seemed like um, I was destined to be a mother at large. And so I just, that was kind of a natural transition to really try and work with what I knew about kids and, and engage them and try and really expand the, the nonfiction world. 
And I'm just looking here at the, the beavers, the superpower, the, yes. the children's version. The, I that, did. That I did from, end yeah. up writing that book. And so that was part of a series called The Superpowered Field Guides, where I found or I wrote about humpy dumpy animals. So the ones no one expects very much from, like beavers, moles, ostriches, eels. <laughs> and I showed their inner superpowers. What, what are some of the superpowers of, well, let's say beavers? Oh, well, well I think beavers are probably the most common of my, my humpy dumpy heroes, but they have their chainsaw teeth and they have their ever toiling tail and they have their hydro powered brilliance. Yeah. Eels. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm scratching my head here about eels and their superpowers. Eel, everyone should know about eels. <laughs> I have to say there's, there's many species. There's about, I don't know, I can't remember, maybe three or 600 species of eels, huh. but the freshwater eels, the, there's a, a European freshwater eel and there's there's, well, there's about a few around the world, but the, the European freshwater eels, uh, no one knows to this day where they come from. It is the great eel mystery. So they travel from, they believe, deep down in the Sargasso Sea, and they travel, and so the, the North American eels and the European eels, they believe they breed together somewhere weirdly deep down, and they migrate all the way to the separate continents, but no one has ever seen an eel egg what? No one has ever seen one. No one has ever found them. No one has ever found their breeding grounds. So because they, they, they spend, I think it's two years at sea, and then they finally get to these European rivers. And so this, this book in particular is about the European eels. They get to these rivers and they can live for decades, decades, 30 years, 40 years, 100 years in what? these rivers as, as a fresh water. And once they get to their river, they never move from their little muddy zone. They're just very, they become like hermits in their particular river. And then at some particular time in their life, they say it's time. And they begin this massive migration back all the way down back to the Sargasso Sea to mysteriously breed and no one knows where. So... That's incredible. Every, and, and also, they are, they are one of the most endangered creatures in the world. Really? Nobody knows and nobody cares. So. Huh. I'm just thinking of the eels in the river where, where I grew up, and they make that journey too? Yes. Yeah. Oh, my golly. Yeah. People used to believe that no one knew where they came from until they were actually able to track them. Now they put trackers on them. But when they put trackers on them, because a lot of these trackers are, I guess they have a magnetic or electric, electric capacity they often seem to do something with the migratory magnetic brain of the eel itself and so often they can't track them because the eels go off track right oh gee and i i I noticed you have one about ostriches and ostriches make a make an appearance they do museum of body leftovers they do because if you were to design a foot a human foot you would want it to look like the ostrich foot but we have monkey feet that were built for, you know, being super flexible and super bendy, but somehow we've, we've kind of made them all straight, which is why we have so many foot problems. But ostrich feet are like the perfectly designed walking foot. They have fewer bones. And they only have two toes. Are you constantly, when you're walking around, Rachel, are you seeing, oh, I wonder about that. Is that <laughs> just part of your day? <laughs> Oh, I guess so. I guess when so. When you have a moment. When I have a moment, I, d- I do find that I always want to know more. I always want to know, but why? I, have, I, I always endlessly ask that, that kid question, but why? And then you go deeper and deeper and deeper, and then sometimes you can't find the answer. <laughs> and were you always like that, even as a child? 
I don't know. I don't know. But I did find I did find a book that I wrote when I was 10, which was all about seahorses. And I'd gone into an encyclopedia and I'd written out very carefully, seahorses are two centimeters long and they live here. And it was this little book that I wrote. And I thought, well, there you go. I'm doing exactly the same thing. <laughs> that was the precursor. I yeah. went on a very, very long journey. <laughs> but now I've come all the way back. Yeah. Oh, that's adorable. <laughs> Tell me about these books, how to promenade with a python and how to hide tea with a hyena and not get eaten. <laughs> so these are very silly books um, that really walk the line between fiction and nonfiction. And they are narrated by a character who is Celeste. She is a cockroach. A cockroach. Oh. So cockroaches are the ultimate survivors. If you're going to survive, you should be a cockroach. But cockroaches have nothing to fear from man-eaters. So they... Uh, they so can she, go out with hyenas, they can go out with They can pythons. do whatever they want. So this the book kind of goes into all the predatory aspects of, of how hyenas hunt and how they eat. And But she takes the child on ever-increasingly dangerous and stupid ideas <laughs> in order to do something which is quite stupid to have high tea with a hyena. And eventually the child does escape after she realizes that uh, Celeste, the cockroach, is, does not have her best interest. And the same with Promenade with a python. There's, there's a poor little boy who gets into ever-increasing dangers and ever-increasingly complex situations. <laughs> but throughout it all, uh, although it's very, very silly, you will learn everything you need to know about uh, how pythons hunt. Interesting, like you say, about the narrator, you know, in the, in the museum book, The Wisdom Tooth, and a mm-hmm. sidekick that we won't talk about because it's a spoiler, <laughs> and, and the, the cockroach. I mean, just coming up with the, the narrator, the key to some of these. I think that's helpful for kids, for someone to be chatting with them. I'm not trying to be the great authority voice. I just want to have a chatty conversation. And you just leave that to the cockroach. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All her terrible ideas. Do you test drive with the family? Oh gosh, yes. Yeah. yeah. And that's been that's been a totally unexpected delight. Now that my kids are seven and ten is they love it so much. Huh. And I didn't really think about that when I started. I didn't I don't know, I guess because they were babies when I started writing, but they they read everything that I I write and they comment on it and they underline their favorite words and yeah, it's really fun. And are they critical sometimes too? No, they are never critical. <laughs> Although they'll they'll say they, they will come up with different ideas if I if I say oh I don't know how to get out of this situation they'll they'll come up with a bunch of ideas but they're generally extremely positive about everything I do. So <laughs> oh, I love it. I love the brainstorming yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> this cockroach is in a real mess here. What are we going to do? What are we going to do to get everybody out of it? Yeah. Tell us about the strangest thing in the sea, because there are very many, well, like you said, with the mystery about the eels, but there are very many strange things that we don't know much about, right? Oh, the sea is is wild. It, it really is, with how bizarre and odd it is. And this book, I guess I should have been mentioning all my illustrators that I work with. This one is uh, illustrated by Byron Egenschweiler, who, this is the second book that we did together. We did a book called Beastly Puzzles, which had the same concept where in this one, I say that the sea is filled with strangeness, and then I'll give kind of a a poetic little description of the creature, where this one says, I look like a silvery moon with graceful wings. Some people call me the swimming head. Am I the strangest thing in the sea? And then there's a gatefold or a flip the flap, 
and you open it up and what appeared to be a moon in the sky, you flip it up and that first half of the moon is revealed to be a creature. And then... A rather odd creature. Yes, it's an ocean sunfish. And then I give various descriptions of the animal. And then it it ends, it it, it gives a really good argument of why it should be the strangest thing in the sea. But then it ends with saying, but I'm not the strangest thing in the sea. (laughs) So then you go on to the next one, which looks like a a ghostly witchy thing. And you open it up. And it says... Goblin shark. I've never even heard of a goblin shark. Well, this book, when I wrote this book, I didn't know half of these creatures. <laughs> this one, I look like a tiptoeing rock wearing a wig. <laughs> <laughs> and look at his little runners. I just love it. I just love it so much. Oh, the hairy frog fish. The hairy frog fish. Looks like a rock with sort of weird things growing out of it. Well, yeah, and so all of these creatures are were totally mysterious and bizarre and amazing. Huh. Um, and there's, there's, uh, there's a Vampire, vampire squid as we go on and then i won't i won't reveal what the strangest thing in the sea is but uh that was a really fun book to to write as well and then at the very end of the book as we go through we've got a big uh, oh. flip out of where the depths of um that all the creatures appear at and little bits of information about what makes all of these different ocean zones so weird and so wonderful you mentioned the delight of the, the illustrations and the, the Museum of Odd Body Leftovers illustrated by Clayton Hanmer. What's it like for you, especially as a, as a visual artist mm-hmm. yourself, what's it like for you to, to see what the folks do with your words, your oh, stories? It is, it is such a fun part of what I do. And I, I kind of, as I go through, because, because it was like the Museum of Odd Body Leftovers, I had to... I had to visualize in my mind what the display would be so that I could write about it. Right. And so I, I write little little notes of, I think this should be a, a kind of a traditional diorama or I think this should be a this and that. And then they take my little, my little scribbly notes and working with, with Clayton was just so fabulous because he is so quirky and he's got such a sense of humor that I think was my sense of humor. And this one in particular, I said, oh, I think there should be, this is the great hall of hominins where there's a whole bunch of uh, different of our ancestors in display cases. And, and I said, oh, could we, could we like maybe write the names on the glass or, or, you know, I just come up with ideas or suggestions. Right. And then what he did with it is just so fabulous with this drippy spray paint. It like tags. It looks like tags yeah. and all the scribbles and all the weird creatures. Harry Jim. Harry Jim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's, uh, it's always just it's such a fun part. And, and people have said, oh, well, you should illustrate your own books to me. Oh, number one, I have no way do I have the talent to do it. But I, I do like the collaborative project. Yeah. I, I enjoy it. And just this book, the museum book, I mean, they're on any page, there are little little things tucked in, like yes. little surprises in the illustrations. Yes, yeah. He did a really fun job with uh, all the bones have little smiley faces on them. <laughs> and, and there's the trees with little faces. faces yeah. yeah. And then and there's a little bone with a smiley <laughs> oh, face. I had noticed that on the pelvis bone. And then there. there's a few little little guys who appear. I don't know if you noticed the little guys. There's one. Oh, there's the, the, yeah, little, the little peekaboo guys. Little, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So those, I mean, I feel like all of those little touches are what make books for kids. Now glands, I'm thinking illustrating the gland book, (laughs) head in hands. Thank thank goodness. (laughs) 
Thank goodness I'm working with Clayton again because I think I think our sense of humor is kind of really fits well and um, my metaphor this one was um, kind of an old broken down natural history museum for the the Museum of Odd Body Leftovers the metaphor for this one is a factory hmm. so I'm kind of thinking something like the old Charlie and the chocolate factory kind uh-huh. of vibe meets Wallace and Gromit sort of <laughs> vibe. So lots of odd contraptions and pipes and tubes and Fun. strange systems that have buttons and things blasting in from here and there. So, What is the oddest or most interesting thing you found out about glands since starting this research? Oh, well, I, I had no idea how incredibly they run our entire body. And I guess the most interesting thing is when I thought of hormones, I thought of puberty and baby making. Mm-hmm. I thought of the sex hormones. But that is just a tiny, tiny fraction of all the hormones that are running around in our body. Our hormones run our calcium levels and our blood pressure and whether we're peeing or not. And uh, every single system, our breathing, our circulatory system, our, is run our immune system, our digestive system is run by hormones. And so I'd really be interested, I haven't had time, but to find out when did that language transition actually happen hmm. and, and how did it happen and, and why? Like, so I am, I am getting into some of the more, like some of the sex hormones in the book, but I feel like that is so well covered. People know all of that. So I'm kind of focusing more on, on all the other ones. And then there's two glandular systems. There's, your, there's the glands that make hormones and like your thyroid gland and your pancreas. And then there are, I call them the messenger glands. And then there's the goop glands or the ones that produce all the, like your mucus and your eye glands and your eyeballs and your sweat glands and all those glands. So I'm dealing with both glandular systems and it is a messy factory. (laughs) As you're doing this research, are ideas for other books coming to mind? Oh, well, I, I, this is the first book that I've ever written on human biology. Mm. I mean, I've done the evolution book, but I, I didn't, I think I've finished biology in grade eight. I, like, I knew nothing about how the body worked. I did do, I do have a PhD in 17th century medicine. <laughs> so my knowledge of biology and medicine really ends around it's... like 1690. <laughs> I could apply leeches, I could do some bleedings, but other than that, I have no idea what's going on. So uh, just learning about the amazing complexity of some of these, like the kidney. The kidney is the most amazing thing. I knew nothing about the kidney, and it's just miraculous. And now I'm, I'm engaging with the digestive system, which is... <laughs> I, so who knows? So maybe I'll write something more about the human body at some point. Yeah, It's impossible to include it all, so it, well, what am I going to... I, oh. I have no idea. You've caught me on a day where I have no idea what I'm going to do. <laughs> I'm very daunted. <laughs> I love I love how cyclical some of these things are when you start to think about it, like your book about you know seahorses as yeah. as a child, and then the the degree that fo- or the research that focused on medicine, albeit in the seventeenth century, yes. <laughs> and just like your some things keep coming back and coming back. Yeah, it is true. I think I think the things the core of what fascinates you. I think it it takes various forms and mutates in various ways, but. I guess I'm endlessly fascinated with with nature mm-hmm. and whether that's the human body or whether that's nature out there and how we talk about it, which I think is always, because it's always shifting how we talk about these things. 
Rachel, it's, I'm so glad we got to do this. We had, we had scheduling challenges for all kinds of reasons, but what a treat to get to have this conversation. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. It was a joy. And that's my conversation with author Rachel Poliquin. We've been talking about a number of her books, including her latest, The Museum of Odd Body Leftovers, A Tour of Your Useless Parts, Flaws, and Other Weird Bits, illustrations by Clayton Hanmer, and is published by Greystone Kids. And I'll have links to Rachel's website, and you can find out more about her and all of her books there. And I'll pop that on the website. Just go to CherylMcKay.com. And if you haven't signed up for the newsletter yet, do that on the site and you'll get notifications when the next episode of the podcast comes out. Plus, lots of links for guests and you can find information there about events that I'll be taking part in in the next little while as well. Thanks so much for listening. Bye for now.